And here we read chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humbly bow before you right now as we stand under the authority of your holy word. O Lord, in these brief words, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, O Lord, to understand and to uh, be instructed by the scripture. I pray that our hearts and souls would be saturated with your word and that it would work sanctifying grace in our minds. Lord, we love you and we ask for your power, not only in the hearing of the word, but of the preaching of the word. Father God, we ask your spirit would be upon my mind, my lips, my mouth, and help me to declare your praise, to declare your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Today begins a new day and a new series for our sermons. And um, we last left off in Acts was our last series. We've been kind of doing some topicals through the last few months. Um, But it's been on my heart for the longest time to want to preach through Colossians. In fact, there was a couple of times I wanted to do Colossians for a Bible study. And I said, no, I'm saving this for preaching. Um, Colossians is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. It is only four chapters. It's a very short letter of Paul to the Colossian church but it is vibrant and it is rich. In fact, according to J.B. Lightfoot, Colossae was the least important church to which an epistle from St. Paul was ever addressed. Not only is it a small book, but it's a small church in a very small city uh, that Paul never, we don't think he ever stepped foot in, but we cannot be certain. He didn't find this church, but he had an affection for this church. And it's what's written in here that really is powerful. And I'm safe to say that the historical significance and impact of Colossians um, outweighs and outsizes the church or the letter or the city. Um, for centuries, um, church fathers in the early church looked to Colossians, um, particularly when they were establishing the doctrine of the deity of Christ in the Nicene Creed or in the Chalcedon Confession. It was the book of Colossians that provided so much rich biblical content and context uh, to support the doctrine of the hypostatic union and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's presented in this beautiful psalm in chapter 1 of the preeminent Christ who is the image of the invisible God of the firstborn of all creation and by him all things were created in heaven on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers authorities all things were created through him and for him it is through these passages that we have a rich vision of the glorified Christ it is Paul's writings against the legalism asceticism and syncretism in the church of Colossae that have been used by the church Uh, for centuries to defend um, the doctrine of Christian liberty and the moral instructions in chapter 3 through 4, the moral imperatives there cannot be ignored. And although there is a great similarity between Colossians and Ephesians, 
uh, it is very distinct and, and, and even goes deeper into the imperatives here of what the new life in Christ looks like, what a home looks like. And all this has great power and influence, and we can really derive so much of a spiritual feast here. But as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves some questions as to understanding the context. We understand that Paul is the author of this. We know that Colossae is the recipients of the letter. But who are the Colossians? As I said before, uh, Paul did not find the church of Colossae. The church of Colossae was a city that was 110 to 120 miles outside of Ephesus. And it was uh, very close, 12 miles to Hierapolis and 15 miles to Laodicea. And these three cities each had a church. And these three cities also had a lot of relationship with each other. And you think of like a network of churches here. You, You see Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis have three little churches. The main church is in Ephesus, which is the capital city of Asia Minor. Now, it was in Ephesus that Paul, on his third missionary journey, spent three years ministering, preaching, establishing a church. No doubt it was from within that three-year ministry in Ephesus that the impact and influence of the gospel spread to these suburbs, if you will, of Ephesus. Now, when Paul was there, it is likely that within his ministry, Epaphras, who was described to us in chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, hears the gospel, brings the gospel back to Colossae. There is a revival. People are saved. The church is established. And Epaphras becomes an elder and pastor of the church of Colossae. In chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, you read this. Epaphras, who is one of you, he's a Colossian, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all as the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. And so it seems as if Epaphras is the man of God. He is the the overseer of the churches, not just in Colossae, where he is a a native, but of Laodicea and Hierapolis. And there uh, he has labored and worked among them. It also indicates here that he was um, in prison with Paul at this point. At this point, Epaphras, the pastor of these churches or overseer of these churches, is in prison with him. And this gives us sort of the occasion of why this letter was written. This letter was written due to uh, 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 something that was threatening the church. There was a a heresy or what we call a philosophy that was undermining the unity of the church and causing division and causing people to wander away from the faith. Piecing everything together, most scholars believe that Epaphras... um, had visited Paul in Rome. This this letter to the Colossian church was written in Paul's imprisonment in Rome during his first trial before Nero. Around AD 62, it was written as one of the later letters of Paul. And it was there when 
Uh, Epaphras went to Rome to, to speak to Paul personally as a mentor and get counsel and advice on how to deal with the issues in the church. And it was there where Epaphras himself was either arrested or voluntarily um, stayed with Paul during his imprisonment. In which case, a letter was sent by Tychius to the Colossian church to address the problems that were going there. Paul would have had firsthand knowledge, not because Paul was the pastor, not because Paul was there, but Epaphras went to Paul seeking advice and seeking counsel. It would sort of be like if I had an issue going to church and I didn't know what to do, well, I wouldn't walk to Bayside, but I would get on the phone and call Pastor Ed Moore, or I would go to uh, call Pastor Peter Nicotra, uh, the men who mentored me into the ministry, and seek their counsel and advice. Except years ago, phones didn't exist, and you had to walk somewhere, and it was very far, to seek the people you needed counsel from. So the question then is, what is the issue here that is at stake. Why was this letter written? What's the occasion for it? And I, as I said before, you can call it a heresy, and, and some of the older scholars might have said it was a heresy or called it the Colossian heresy, but, but it's kind of hard uh, to say that because it's, it's not a clearly defined heresy. Gnosticism in its full-blown Understanding did not develop to the second century, but rather we're dealing here with tendencies, attitudes, traditions uh, that have infiltrated the church. Uh, Paul refers to this uh, uh, as a, this collection of ideas as the, the philosophy, and we could call it the philosophy that is uh, interrupting and threatening the church. In fact, in chapter two, Paul enumerates several characteristics of this philosophy and referring to people in the church, within the church, who are using this philosophy or collection of philosophies to judge other Christians and to mislead other Christians. They're misled themselves and they're misleading others. And so, for instance, in Colossians 2, verse 8, we see, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And so he speaks of this empty uh, deceit, this, this philosophy, this worldly traditions um, that are dominating. Don't let people take you captive by this. So there's these, uh, these worldviews that are competing with uh, a Christian biblical worldview. In chapter 2, verse 16, we read, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. We see here again, there is, there's judgment. There's people in the church judging other Christians about how they observe Sabbaths or new moons or Jewish festivals. There's judgment being passed. There's division taking place. Again, this is a cultural Jewish uh, um, tradition that's filtering into the church. Colossians 2.18 says, let no one disqualify you. Right? There are members in the church who are trying to disqualify other members from being Christians, insisting on what? Asceticism and worship of angels. Asceta what? Asceticism. It's a fancy word that basically means an extreme 
deprivation of your flesh. So when we talk about asceticism, we're talking about people who are maybe going on 40-day fasts or, or they're, they're flagellating themselves or they're uh, purposely uh, um, living in extreme poverty, thinking that by, by bringing upon uh, extra suffering onto themselves that they're somehow going to get closer to God. We see this a lot in the monastic movements in the Middle Ages. And so there are those in the church who, who are saying, you need to live like this or, and you need to worship angels, going on in detail about visions and, and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. So you have, you have mystics, you have hyper-spiritual people in the church telling you, if you don't live like me, you're not really a Christian. And then you have others uh, in chapter 2, verse 20, uh, through 20 um, on, it, it goes, says this, if with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul's dealing again with this, this hyper-spirituality about don't touch, don't go here, don't, don't, don't breathe, don't look. Don't. It's a, this ascetic, this, this legalistic mentality that's taken hold of the church. And so this philosophy can't really fit neatly into one box it's a collection of ideas. Uh, it's a collection of Jewish legalism, Jewish mysticism, and paganism all wrapped into one. There's a dualism there as well. And, 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 and a majority of scholars in studying this uh, believe that this is definitely a collection of different beliefs. It's, it's Phrygian folk belief, Christian folk belief, Jewish mysticism all wrapped into one. What it's really saying is that the Christians in Colossae, although new believers and in love with God, imported a lot of their culture and traditions and background with them into their Christian experience. And thus, it forms a new religion, one that's not Christian. Theologians have a word for this. It's called syncretism. It means when we blend elements of different religions and different worldviews and come up with something new and distinct, different and distinct. Now, let me make this clear. There is really no such thing of an absolutely pure Christian religion. Absolutely not. Because every, every branch of Christianity, every church to some degree is syncretistic. We all are bringing some elements of our culture our traditions and our world beliefs into our experience. So for instance, I had a debate one time with someone quite a number of years ago about music in the church. Back in the 90s, early 2000s, there were what they called the worship wars were taking place in the church. The older generation felt very uncomfortable with a lot of the modern new song that was coming into the church. They said, no, we want our hymns. The hymns, that's biblical. These new songs are not biblical. And these were the debates that used to go on. 
In fact, I had one man who told me, in my left hand I have my Bible, in my right hand I have my hymnal, and I don't leave home without either one of them. In some way, that is a tradition. It's a tradition you grew up with and developed, and it, it may be a good tradition, but it's not biblical. In the same way, the modern music definitely takes some influence from modern music. If you listen to modern worship music, it, it has a different sound and a different beat than the old hymns. But the old hymns themselves are not free from syncretism because they themselves were influenced by compositions, and you'll see sometimes in your hymnal, by Beethoven and Mozart, and, so, and they were songs that were worldly, that were Christianized. Some of them were even barroom songs in England during the 17th and 18th century. And so, there is an element of syncretism in all of our worship and experience. The question is, do we allow the scripture ultimately to dictate what we do? Are we governed by God's word? Or are we governed by our cultural experiences, by our worldviews that, from from, that exist outside of the Bible? What has the greater predominance? What matters most? And I think in some ways, syncretism has always been an issue for God's people. When the Jews came into Canaan, God told them very directly in Leviticus 18, do not do as the people do in Canaan. Do not act like they do. Do not, do not adopt their customs. Do not worship. And he gives a list of things not to do. Why? You are a holy people. You are a peculiar people to me. Be holy as I am holy. Be separate. And what did Israel do? They went in there and they worshiped Yahweh and they incorporated elements of Baal worship and Ashtar worship and they concocted a syncretistic form of worship in northern Israel that was an utter offense to God, an abomination, and God judged the northern kingdom of Israel for it. Throughout the church age, we see this. Roman Catholicism. You cannot miss that till this day, Roman Catholicism is a syncretistic joining of the Roman Empire and Christianity. Everything about Roman Catholicism reeks of the ancient Roman Empire. With the Pope as the head of the church, who is the emperor, and the cardinals who make up uh, the Vatican, who make up the, the Senate, and you have this all this imagery and, and the structures all bring you back to ancient Rome. The saints, Mary, all of it is designed to bring us back to a pluralistic pagan religion. Let's just Christianize it. And that's exactly what happened in the 4th century. All of the pagan temples were taken over by the, by the Roman Empire and Christianized. And look where Roman Catholicism is today. It leads us to the worship of idols, the um, veneration of Mary, and so on and so forth. But you see, as Christians, when we come out of our old ways, it's hard to sometimes break with those habits. When I first became a Christian, I had a Roman Catholic background. And for the first year of my Christian life, I was in the habit of, <laughs> you know, I did the sign of the cross. I, I just, it was the way I, the way I grew up. It's just how I lived. I did the sign of the cross. I didn't, to me, what was wrong with it? It was just how I lived. And it wasn't until I came to understand, well, where in the Bible does it teach? It's a tradition. It's a tradition that I inherited and I incorporated, and eventually it fell away from me. There were views that I held when I first became a Christian that were clearly unbiblical. 
Very unbiblical. And as I became a Christian, those views dissipated. I changed my mind. You see, when you become a Christian, we try to bring in a lot of our background, our culture, our worldview, our religious experiences incorporated into Christianity. And the problem is when we allow our culture and worldview to shape our version of Christianity rather than letting Christianity shape our worldview and our culture. And so that's what we face when we deal with syncretism. And syncretism is as much of a problem today as it ever was. The problem in Colossae is no different than the problem we face today. It is the problem of the prosperity theology movement. Prosperity theology is just a syncretistic religion of blending Christianity with American capitalism. That's really what it is. It, it's a matter of, of, of taking all of the history of American capitalism in the 19th century and revivalism, blending it together, and poof, you have the name and claim in movement. The Hillsong Church out in Hollywood, is, it, it's no surprise that all of Hollywood goes there. It's a syncretistic movement. It capitulates to the culture and the worldview of progressive Hollywood and will bend on all the issues to make people feel comfortable and accepted there and will compromise the gospel. Of course people are going to feel comfortable. It's a Hollywood church. It blends the worldview of Hollywood with Christianity. Unfortunately, it's the culture that overwhelms the gospel. And so, yes, to some degree, we live in this world where we're not of it. And to some degree, we're shaped and molded by the world we live in. But never does the worldview and never does the culture overshadow the gospel or overshadow biblical authority. In the end, it must be the gospel. It must be the Bible that shapes how we worship, how we think, and how we, how we uh, move through life and think about life and how we live our life. That was not the case in Colossae. What's the answer to all of this? The answer is very simple. It is Christ. It is Christ. All through Colossians, Paul brings it back to Christ. It is tradition or it's Christ. It's culture or it's Christ. It's philosophy or it's Christ. I mean, it, it is one of the most Christ-centered epistles in the Bible. As I said, it was used to form the robust Christology of the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon Confession. It is the basis of how we understand the glorious Christ. I mean, just look, for instance, Roman uh, 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 15 through 18 is referred to as Christ in you, the hope of glory. In 2.17, it tells us these are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to who? Christ. Colossians 2.20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Colossians 3.1, I think, is the, is the center of the book. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is the answer. That's the sum of the whole book there. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You've been raised with Christ. You're a new creation. To live in Christ is a term that is repeated often in the New Testament. 
33 times in Paul's letters does he use the expression in Christ. 48 times in the book of Colossians does he use the phrase in Christ. Why? No, I'm sorry, 48 times in, in Paul's writings in Christ Jesus, not Colossians. Why is this emphasis? Because it's who we are, it's our identity. This is so important today in a world where identity and divisiveness is so prominent. You identify as Republican or Democrat, black or white, male or female, gay or not, all these labels and we we divide and, and politics has ripped us apart as a country. That's the world. God only has two labels. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. You're either a child, a child of darkness or a child of light. You're either, uh, uh, so you're either in Christ and, in, and, and going to heaven or you're in sins and you're going to hell. You're the believer. And you're only, those are the only two categories that matter. Everything else is superficial. Christ is at the center of all this. Christ overshadows all the philosophies and worldviews that exist in this world. They're human. They're the elemental spirits of this world. We belong to Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. And so let's, that was just my opening paragraph. (laughs) And these two verses are very simple. Tells us who the letter's coming from and who it's going to. It's coming from Paul via Timothy. Paul, the apostle, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Timothy, our brother. Now, clearly, this is Paul writing through Timothy. Timothy is the secretary of the Amenusis, and Paul is dictating to him to write. But I think there's something important to see here. Paul often will, will introduce himself in different manners, depending on the situation of the church. Some he'll say, Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to some he'll say, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is stating the obvious. He's stating his apostolic office. Why? Because his apostolic office represents authority. He is reminding them, he is not just Paul. I am apostle Paul, and I'm speaking, you better listen. And it's not my will that I'm revealing to you. It's the will of God. Now, let me make something clear. Apostles do not exist anymore. Anyone who tells you they're an apostle either doesn't know their Bible, is deluded, or is trying to deceive you. They're just, they know what they're doing is wrong and they, they enjoy doing it. No one, no one is an apostle today. No one deserves the title apostle That is because the title, the office of apostolos, ended in the first century. It was a unique office that the 12 who Jesus chose, minus Judas and Paul, only possess that title. It is a title of authority. And there are certain distinctions and characteristics which makes someone an apostle. An apostle is someone who receives direct revelation from Jesus Christ. 
and who speaks with authority in the name of Christ. That's the word apostolos. It means messenger. Apostolos were messengers of the emperor. They were those, the apostolos was the man who, when he arrived into town, he was a herald and he, he declared the will of the king. Hear ye, hear ye. Here is what the king says. So the apostles speak with an authority that no other human being speaks because they were selected by Jesus. In John 15, 16, Jesus said to his apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus selected each and every one of his apostles, eternally predestined them before the ages began, and in his human ministry, he, he selected those who would be his apostolos, Judas being the traitor, But he is the one who chose, even born out of due time, Paul, who was one time named Saul. It wasn't Paul who sought Jesus out. Paul was trying to kill Christians. And it was Jesus who sought Paul and said, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? I will appoint you. You are my chosen vessel, he said in Acts 9.15. And I will appoint you to speak before the Gentiles and before kings. An apostle is chosen by Jesus Christ directly. So anyone who says, I'm an apostle. I, I, one time I was driving on the Cross Canyon Parkway and I, I seen a guy pass me doing 100 miles an hour with a BMW and on his license plate said, apostle. Galatians 1.1, Paul says, Paul, he introduces himself an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Hallelujah. Secondly, apostles are those who have beheld or been eyewitnesses of Christ's glory. Someone calls himself an apostle, and again, it is only these who I've mentioned are those who have beheld and seen the glorious Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 9, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, some have fallen asleep, Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I am persecuted the church of God. Paul doesn't relish in his title. He doesn't like to use his title to beat people over the head. In fact, he says, I'm the least of them. I'm the the least qualified, the least worthy. But in, in the case of dealing with a problem in a church, he must exert his apostolic authority. Thirdly, apostles are known by miracle signs and wonders. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul tells the church of Corinth who was questioning his apostolic credentials. He says to them, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with uttermost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You know how you know someone's an apostle? Are they raising the dead? Are they healing the blind? Are they preaching and 5,000 people get saved at once and the Holy Spirit falls upon them? You only see that in the Bible. You know why? Because that's the work of an apostle. 
The apostle is known by its mighty signs and wonders. And this is why why the charismatic movement emphasizes so much on signs and miracles and wonders. That's not for the everyday experience of the everyday Christian. The signs and wonders were given to authenticate the work and the word of God via agents of revelation, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, who declared, thus saith the Lord, by speaking with apostolic authority. Those signs and miracles were the evidence they were from God. And thus we submit to the authority of the apostolic doctrine. In Acts 2.42, in the birth of the church, said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. We, they didn't have the New Testament we do today. You know what makes a book in the New Testament God's word? It was written by an apostle or dictated by an apostle. Every book in the New Testament was written by an apostle or dictated by an apostle. So in the case of Luke, for instance, we'll say, well, he's a Gentile, he's a doctor, he's not an apostle. No, but it was Paul and Peter and, and, and Mark and others who in, inputted into everything he did and thus inspired the text. All of Paul's writings, Peter's writings, John's writing, Revelation, the Gospel of Mark was, was supervised by Peter. John's Gospel was written by John the Apostle. Matthew was the tax collector apostle. They were all authored by apostolic governing leadership and inspiration. That's why it tells us in Ephesians that Christ is the cornerstone and the prophets and the apostles are the foundation. What makes the foundation of Christianity? It's the writings of the Old Testament and the writings of the New Testament. God's agents of revelation. That's why in Colossians 4.16, and notice this. Notice what Paul says. He says, when this letter, speaking to the Colossian church, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. You know what that tells us? That Paul understood that his letter was not just for the church of Colossae. It was for all Christians. He understood his writings were the very words of God. What happened to the letter of Laodicea? It wasn't God's will for it to be contained in the scripture. If God wanted the letter to Laodicea in the New Testament, it would be there. In God's providence, it's not. And so what does this tell us? The application is very simple. In light of all the voices that they were hearing in Colossae, in light of all of the influences, in light of uh, you know, all the people who were talking and saying, you should do this and you should do that, and I think this is the way you should live. And, and Paul saying, no, don't listen to them. Listen to the word of God. Stop listening to all the voices around you and listen to the one voice that counts, God's voice. And that was contained in Paul's writings. John MacArthur says this about Paul. He is not about to write a letter that gives his opinion. He's not simply a messenger. He is somebody clothed with the authority and endued with the power of the sender. He is not just carrying a message. He represents authority and power. This means for us, ultimately, that we need to allow God's word to be the ultimate rule and dictate of our life. 
Because in the Bible is revealed the will of God. And secondly, who are the people who are receiving this letter? Well, it's notice to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Very interesting words that are used here. And the first word I want you to look at is the term saint. Look at the term saint. Let's do a little of our syncretism background, right? I grew up Roman Catholic. So I knew about St. Anthony and St. Joseph and St. Mary and St. Catherine and St. Aloysius and St. This and St. That and All Saints Day. Pray to this saint. Recently, I had a lady in the real estate office and she says to me, oh, um, you're putting a house on the market. Let me give you a statue of St. Anthony to put on the, the front lawn. And I said, I don't want your statue, sorry. That's paganism. That's syncretistic. If you think a saint is someone who the Catholic Church says is a saint because they meet a certain criteria and they're holy and you pray to them and they pray to Jesus for you, you're, you, you don't understand the Bible. You need to grow more. That's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible is Paul refers to all of you as saints. We are all saints. Saint Bob. Saint Anthony. Saint Nathan. Saint Saint E. We're all saints. The word saint, literally in Greek, is hagios. It means holy one. Not holy in a sense of pure and perfect, but holy in a sense is separated by God. Paul is saying, you are God's people. You've been set apart by him. Isn't that beautiful? We've been set apart by his grace, set apart by his purpose, and set apart for him. This is the message that they needed to know in Colossae. You need to separate yourselves from the world and its traditions. You belong to Christ, not to the world. He calls them saints. And then he also refers to them as brothers, faithful brothers, the word Adelphoi there means our family. It can mean brothers and sisters. You know what it means? It means that in the church, we're family. God is our father. Christ is our brother. The word Adelphoi was used in, in Greek to connote when you belong to a, like a trade guild or an association. These, these were your brothers, your comrades, like your second family. But your Christian family is your first family. It's the family you live with forever in heaven. Your blood relatives, if they're not saved, they're not going with you to heaven. We are family. But what's really and most fascinating about Paul's address to the church is their dual location. He, he refers to them as in Christ and at Colossae. They're both in Christ and at Colossae at the same time. Dual locations. Physically, they're in Colossae. Spiritually, they're in Christ. Physically, we're in Hartsdale. Spiritually, we're in Christ. 
Physically, we're here in this world. Spiritually, we've come to Mount Zion in the, and in the company of innumerable angels and to saints who've gone before us worshiping the risen Christ. It's amazing how we could be in two places at once. And yet, isn't that what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1? He says, if you've been raised with Christ and seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, you've been raised already. We're already in Christ. We're united to him by faith. We're in the heavenly realm with one foot and one foot we're still here. And so we're in the kingdom of God and yet physically we're still here. Clyde Snodgrass says this, in Paul's mind, just as these Christians live literally in the region near Colossae, they also live in Christ. The terrain, climate, values, and history in which people grow up and live helps define who they are. As really, as this region near Colossae defines who they are, Christ defines who believers really are. Here in the sphere of influence or power field in which they live and from which they benefit are transformed. That is, his spirit, values, character, history, and purposes shape their lives. People can live in other spheres, but Christians live in Christ. Jesus Christ must never be depersonalized by such language, but we will not understand Paul unless we learn to think of life as lived in Christ. And this is powerful. And this goes back to what I said from the beginning. If we're going to understand how we overcome all the, the culture, the history, the traditions, and the influences that we have around us, it is only when we understand who really shapes us, and that is the history, values, culture, and traditions of Christ. Let me conclude. The words of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae are meant and intended to impart grace and peace from God, as he says. And grace comes to us. Grace is that unmerited, spontaneous favor of God in action. It is the sovereign, freely bestowed, loving kindness in operation. And as a result, it results in peace. It is the peace of God that we have with him and the peace with one another and ultimately the peace with ourselves. No one can have peace. If you're in turmoil, it's because you don't have peace with God. You cannot be at peace with yourself and you cannot be at peace with other people till you have peace with God. And Christ Jesus died for us. He, was, he, he bore our sins on the cross so that through his cross, through his blood, we may have peace with God. That is the shalom. That is the message of the gospel. Faith in Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, dwelling in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Christian life. And so as we come to this conclusion, we realize that we look to this book of Colossians to have a greater apprehension, a greater enjoyment, and a greater sense of who Christ is. We need that. And as we have a greater, bolder vision for Jesus Christ, that's going to change and shift our lives. So as we go through the study of Colossians, the hope here 
is that we would become more Christ-like. Or rather, that we would have more in Christ-likeness. That we would live in him and not in this world. And that our minds, our hearts, and our wills would be shaped and determined by Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time, this word. We thank you, God, for the power of the gospel, for the power of your word. I thank you, Lord, that that we are in you, not by our own doing, not by our choice, but by your will. For we were born not of the will of man or the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. We were born again into this new life. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that in this journey in Colossians, I pray there would be a new season of growth for grace and truth. I pray that you would change us from the inside out. Help us to develop more love for one another, that we would disciple one another, be committed to you, and that you would sanctify us. We love you, Lord, and we can't do none of this without you. So please be glorified and hear our prayers in Christ's name. Amen.